Let's continue that prayer. Our Father, we do cry together from our hearts, holy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world for all your people. And so we pray now, as we have found grace at the feet of Jesus, that you would speak to us, and that just as the first Christians gathered, and your word says that great power was upon the apostles as they proclaimed the resurrection, and great grace was upon all, we pray that that would happen now by your Spirit's power that great power would be upon me as I proclaim your word, and great grace would be upon all of us as we receive your word and you change us by speaking to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can join me in turning to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 24. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's under a seat near you, uh, that's on page 546. So if you don't have a Bible, please do grab one. We'll be looking closely together at a few verses in Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verses 10 to 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Well, we're in our last Sunday in this series on Proverbs. We spent a couple months looking at the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, and then the past three months or so, we have been looking at the prominent themes in the rest of the book. So we've covered topics like friendship, parenting, work, money, Conflict, resolution, the power of words, humility. And in this final sermon, we'll look at one more text together, which is the one that we just read. And this text calls us to take responsibility for rescuing victims of deadly injustice. It calls us to rescue those who are unjustly being carried away to death. And what this text does is it brings together two other prominent themes in the book of Proverbs. One theme is that of selflessness. So if you scan the book of Proverbs and you look for the words selfless or selfish, you won't find much because they're represented by different words. The word used to describe the selfless is righteous. So in Proverbs, we've seen all along that the the righteous are those who are selfless. Righteousness in Proverbs is not about private religious piety. The righteous in Proverbs are those who, as uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke noticed in studying the book of Proverbs and other texts, that the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others, in contrast to the wicked who disadvantage others for the advantage of themselves. 
So they sacrifice their own self-interest for the sake of others. They're others-oriented in their actions. The other theme that this brings um, that from Proverbs that, brings, that comes together in this text is that of human dignity. Proverbs repeatedly affirms the dignity of every human life. And this is most often uh, seen in Proverbs by the lifting up and the raising up of the value of the weak, the needy, and the poor. Those with power often overrun the weak. And Proverbs repeatedly says, those who are poor are made in God's image just as the rich equal in his sight. But in Proverbs, the call is then to care for the weak, the needy, and the poor, because every human being is made in God's image. So Proverbs upholds the dignity of every every human life. So our text this morning brings those two themes in Proverbs together, selflessness and human dignity. Now, if you're not a Christian, I think it's helpful and maybe even a bit surprising to see that the Bible and the Old Testament resonates with what I suspect you deeply value. We all value selflessness. We know that selflessness is attractive, and we know that selfishness is repulsive. We see it in our own heart, and we don't like it. We see it in others, and we don't like it. And we also value the dignity of every human being, and we care about justice for all, and we care about human rights for all. So the reason why we want these things according to the Bible is because God made you, the same God who wrote this book, made you in the world you live in. So Proverbs takes these two themes of selflessness and human dignity, and in this text, applies those two themes to a crisis situation. It calls for selfless action on behalf of those whose human dignity is being disregarded to the point of death. So some human beings are being unjustly killed in this ancient world. They're not valued as made in God's image. And then this text is calling the readers to courageously rescue them. So it calls us to show selflessness by rescuing victims of deadly injustice. So this text applies to many different kinds of situations. Anywhere any human being is being unjustly taken to death this text applies to. It means that we have a responsibility to rescue them because every human being has dignity regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of the ability of that person to contribute to society. So this calls us to be pro-life for all lives. And then there's one particular human injustice that is most pressing today, and it's the injustice against the unborn. So we'll consider how this text leads us to care for the unborn who are weak and vulnerable but have human dignity and yet they're being carried away to death. So I have four hopes for this message. One, that it will strengthen and encourage those of you who are working for justice and in particular this morning for the unborn, for women and men and children in their need in these situations. Second, that it will motivate some of you to re-engage. We can be sporadic in our efforts of selflessness for those who have need. Um, so my, my hope is that this will cause some of you who have done things in the past to re-engage in your efforts. Third, 
My hope is that this will be a turning point for some of you, that it will be a turning point for the rest of you who weren't in the first two categories there, to take responsibility, to care for the needy, and in particular, the unborn in our neighborhoods and among the nations. And then finally, my hope is that God would give a deep comfort to those of you who are hurting this morning. My hope is that God would pronounce comfort and not condemnation over your soul, your heart, and that you would not walk away this morning grieving without hope, but feeling deeply known, deeply loved, deeply forgiven and free under the smile of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so my hope is that you would trust afresh, or for the first time, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died in your place for every sin and has grace greater than all your sin, that you would trust Him and rest in His grace. So the tone and content of this sermon is not condemnation for those who have failed to protect others. It's grace for those who have failed to protect others, which includes all of us. So God has forgiving grace for all our failings. He also has empowering grace to lead us to love and serve. So some of you who have been most affected by this issue, the Lord has grace for you not only to feel more forgiven than you ever have, but to be empowered to make a difference in the lives of others. So through this text, God calls us then to show courageous selflessness in rescuing victims of deadly injustice. There's four words that summarize uh, what we need in order to be compelled to love our preborn neighbors. So the four words ahead of time, fortitude, action, responsibility, and motivation. First, fortitude. Verse 10, if you can read it with me. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So this is an indirect rebuke. This wise man is saying to us, days of adversity come, hard times come, seasons of suffering come, moments of crisis come, and when they come, he's saying your character is exposed. Will you be strong and endure with courage, or will you be passive or shrink back and not do anything? So this picture is courage standing up, ready to act in crisis situations. And notice how this is written as a rebuke. This is addressing the tendency in our hearts to cowardice, the tendency to passivity, the tendency toward seeing problems but doing nothing about them. The opposite of that is fortitude. It's not a word we use much anymore, but I love this word. Fortitude brings together um, courage and patience. Courage and endurance, an enduring kind of selfless love, sustained courage in the face of a challenging situation. The New Testament highlights this as a virtue. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Not just doing good, but not growing weary in doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So it's a repeated theme in the New Testament. So, so far we see that this text is calling us to have a specific 
character quality or virtue of fortitude in the midst of what this text calls a day of adversity or a day of distress. So that's a general kind of situation, and this is calling us for courage that's sustained in the midst of it. The next verse applies this to a specific situation. So verse 10 challenges us to cultivate fortitude. Now second, verse 11 commands us to action. So verse 10 calls for fortitude in general in a day of adversity. Now verse 11 calls us to show fortitude in a specific kind of day of adversity. It reads this way. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So this gives us one clear command expressed in a couple different ways. It's a call to action, a call to rescue the innocent from unjust killing. We don't know how these victims are killed. We don't know who these victims are. It may have been referring to times when a foreign army would have come in and captured people and carried them away to death. It may have been referring to times in this world, in this, that time, where babies were sacrificed on altars to pagan gods like Molech. It may have been referring to the injustice in a legal system that wrongly sentenced people to death, perhaps as a result of corruption and bribery and vengeance. It could have been regarding uh, protecting people from murder. We also don't know how we are called to rescue people in that situation. Is it through a direct encounter? Or is this through creating more just laws? We don't know. This is probably intentionally general because this is how the book of Proverbs works. It gives us general principles that then we can take and apply to every situa situation of life that would fall under the umbrella of that principle. It gives us general wisdom to apply to the various situations. So here's the principle. Do whatever you can to rescue any human being from an unjust death. That's the principle. And then we take that and apply it to whatever situation that applies then. Where is there a human being being taken to an unjust death? We then are called to do something about that. Again, this isn't addressing those who are doing that, telling them not to, though that's included. This is saying everyone, you have a responsibility to do whatever you can to help any human being being carried away to an unjust death. I think this principle resonates deeply inside all of us. Our movies constantly lift up as heroes, those who step in to protect victims of injustice, especially when the injustice is leading to the point of death. In superhero movies, the hero rescues the vulnerable from death. In military movies, the good army rescues people from unjust death. And if you're a Christian, then you have a long heritage of brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith who have done this throughout the centuries. Different situations different ways of rescuing, but applying this principle from Proverbs. So here are some examples. The patriarch Joseph in the book of Genesis, his brothers wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit. 
And as they're plotting to kill him, his brother Reuben stepped in to rescue him. When Reuben heard his brother's plots, he said, the text says, he rescued him out of their hands. And interesting, how did he do it? Well, it was, a, it was a rescuing like Proverbs talks about, but he didn't do it by force. He used it with his words, with persuasion. He said, it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. So rescuing sometimes looks like personal persuasion. Israel was in slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh ordered for every male child of the Hebrew families to be killed. And the Hebrew midwives refused to do it. They refused to kill the children and said they rescued them, it says, because they feared God. So here, rescuing looks like personal courage to not kill children, even when there's legal and cultural pressure to do so. Centuries later, another, it, later Israel was in exile. Another king gave an edict for genocide against the Jewish people, and Esther risked her own life to rescue her people. And she saved her people by working to change the law. So sometimes rescuing looks like working to change the laws of the land, even putting your own life at risk to do so and reputation at risk to do so. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, abortion and infanticide were normal. And none of the philosophers and intellectuals had a problem with it. Some of them recommended it. But then as the gospel spread and people became Christians... All of a sudden, people started changing their minds. An early Christian document explicitly says this, there are two different ways, the way of life and the way of death, and the difference between the two is great. Therefore, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. So here in the early church, just under 2,000 years ago, rescuing looked like church leaders teaching their people about the sanctity of human life. The early Christians also literally rescued babies. Some of the babies were left out in the open or thrown in the city dumps to die. And so Christians would go and gather them up and raise them in their own homes or adopt them into their families. A few hundred years ago, William, William Carey became a missionary to India. And he didn't just spread the gospel to people. He also cared for all sorts of physical needs because as John Piper once said, Christians care for all suffering, especially eternal suffering, but it's both. And so he found out as he went there that people were sacrificing over a hundred babies each year by throwing them into the Ganges River to be eaten by crocodiles as, as an example of sacrifice honoring their gods. So Carey launched an effort to end the practice. Eventually, they passed legislation outlawing it, even though some said that he was imposing his morals on people. Here again, rescuing looks like working to change the laws and persuading people of the value of human life. William Wilberforce dedicated his career to ending the slave trade in England. He worked to change legislation. Many people viewed him as an extremist. He had a lot of setbacks. It took decades. But he wrote this, never, never desist until we extinguish every trace of this bloody traffic of which our posterity, looking back 
to the history of these enlightened times will scarce believe that it's been suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonor to his country. In other words, we must do everything we can, no matter how long it takes and how hard we work, so that those in future generations don't look back on us and say, how in the world could you let this keep going on? parts of Africa. About a century and a half ago, many people thought twins were a curse. So if you had twins, you left them out in the bushes, and they might be eaten by animals, die a different way. And so Mary Slessor rescued and adopted a set of twins, and then she started, she just kept collecting them until she had to start an orphanage. And through her sacrificial fortitude, she not only rescued children, but many people became Christians because they were so taken by her courage for those who needed care. So, there's various ways in which God's people have expressed this impulse that's expressed in Proverbs here to rescue the innocent from death. So, we are now a new generation. There is not new work to be done. It's just our turn to do this in this long legacy. So we have the same kinds of challenges to deal with. So Proverbs says that there's this thing in verse 10 called the day of adversity. There's a days of adversity in every generation. We're living in a day of adversity because every day, innocent people are being taken away to death. So who is being carried away today? Well, I said at the beginning that um, I want to show how this applies to abortion because this text either applies to abortion, or it doesn't. And that matters, right? Answering that question, does this or does this not apply to abortion? It either does or it doesn't, depending on how we answer one question and only one question. It either calls us to engage in the issue or not, depending on how we answer one question. And that question is the most important question in any personal conversation you'll ever have about abortion or in thinking about the topic yourself. And it's this, are the unborn human beings? That is a fair and reasonable question, and it matters how we answer it. Are the unborn people? If we answer the question by saying yes, the preborn are human beings, then here is the logical implication of that. This means that abortion is the greatest human rights issue of our day. It's the greatest justice issue of our generation. And it means that this text shows us what we are called to do. It calls us to actively work to love the weak and vulnerable in the womb. So the key question is, is the preborn a person? Is the unborn a member of the human family while he or she is in the womb? How do we answer that question? Well, we could answer the question as Christians with the Bible as our authority, looking to see what the Bible says, and the Bible is unambiguous about this in the way it talks about children in the womb as people. In fact, for those of you who have children who are in Sunday school right now, I got the email this morning that says, here's some discussion questions for your children. They just happen to be talking about the story when Mary visits Elizabeth because both women are pregnant. Mary is going to be pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth with John the Baptist. And when Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, it says that that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. Um, 
some miraculous, joyful energy given to John the Baptist because he was in the presence of Jesus Christ as a baby in the womb. We could also think about this scientifically. So here's a few questions. First question, is the embryo or fetus a part of the mother or a distinct being? According to the science of embryology, uh, they are distinct, living, and whole human beings from the earliest stages. An embryo or fetus is distinct from the mother from the point of fertilization. So that raises another question. We would ask, what kind of being is this? If it's distinct, what is it? We wouldn't just say it's a fetus because that doesn't actually help us identify it because there's elephant fetuses and other animal fetuses. So what kind of fetus is it? Well, that depends on who its parents are. And parents are humans. So this is a distinct human fetus. It's a human being. So here's a new question. Is the fetus alive? Is this distinct human being alive? And the answer, according again to the science of embryology, is yes. It is a living human being distinct from the mother and growing from the earliest point, from fertilization. So according to science, a fetus does not become a human being at birth. Birth changes that child's location, but it does not change its fundamental identity. So when we call the preborn a fetus, it's helpful to remember that that doesn't mean we're not calling it a human being. We're just saying how old that human is. We call them a fetus when they're in the womb. We call them babies when they come out of the womb. We call them toddlers when they toddle around. We call them teenagers when they're teenagers. We call them adults when they're adults. We call them other things throughout different points of life. And all of those are just different words we use to refer to different ages of these members of the human family. Same person, different stages of development. So this is important to know because in everyday common conversation, many people make one main assumption about the unborn. And the main assumption is that the unborn are not human beings. So here's why this matters. Because if a baby in the womb is a human being like a baby outside of the womb, then it matters how we treat her in the womb or out of the womb. It means that the preborn should have the same human rights as a toddler. I mean, do you, do you just see the, the consistent logic of this, right? This isn't some kind of religious magic here, right? The, the, the preborn, if it's a human being, deserves the same human rights before sliding a few inches out of the birth canal. So, we assume that toddlers are human beings, which is why we believe that toddlers are entitled to the same human rights as adults. Age and level of development do not determine the level of human rights. We don't apply a gradation scale to different people based upon how smart they are, how big they are, how much they contribute to society. Toddlers are equally worthy of respect and protection, most people believe in human rights, and they apply them to all humans who are out of the womb. But we don't as often apply them to the preborn because we don't think of them as human beings. That is the reason. 
But if we were consistent here, then we would promote the protection of every human being, including the preborn, because we do not let men and women kill their toddlers. Why? Because the toddler is a human being, and we believe that toddlers have human rights. So we are, as Christians, pro-choice for men and women in many areas of life. But as a society, we recognize that certain rights of others limit our choices. One choice that we do not affirm or accept is the choice to kill another human being. And so if we care about equal human rights, then we have to apply those equal human rights equally. If the pre-born boys and girls are human beings like toddlers, and if we care about human rights, then this means we are a generation that has a whole class of human beings who are denied those rights. This is not different than what's happened in many other countries throughout the world that, that puts certain humans because of the color of their skin, for example, in a different category of human being that do not get the same rights as others. And so it's a time when the weakest among us, the most vulnerable, are not defended but are taken away to death. Now, this doesn't feel like a day of adversity like Proverbs talks to us about. And it doesn't feel that way for a few reasons. One of them is that it doesn't look that bad. It's done in private and it's very sanitary. Second, it's legally acceptable. I mean, since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was passed, our legal system does not apply human rights to the unborn. A third reason is that it's culturally controversial. And so when people have different opinions about things, especially important things that then get, that rise to the, national, or the, the level of public discourse and national conversation, when people have different things, uh, different opinions, our tendency is to take a relativist posture and say, well, we really can't know because so many people disagree. So we can't really know what's true, right, or wrong here. Fourth, we are rightly sympathetic with so many men and women who are put in very difficult situations. Many women face great challenges raising children they weren't expecting, and they're often very clouded or confused on this issue or conflicted in their thinking or do not have the support and resources around them to make this decision easier. So this doesn't look and feel like the crisis situation of Proverbs 24. But if the unborn are human beings, then it is. So here's a way to summarize the point. If the unborn is not a human being, then there really is no problem taking her life. But if the unborn is a human being, then that changes everything. Because it makes the act morally equivalent to taking the life of a toddler. And that means that verse 11 applies, which means we are all called to protect. So far, we've seen the need for fortitude and action. Third, responsibility. So those through history who modeled this kind of fortitude and action, they defended the rights of those who were unjustly taken to death. They also had another thing in common. They understood that they were responsible to help victims of injustice, even if they had nothing to do with the problem. So verse 12 anticipates a 
possible excuse for inaction. It addresses those of us who will hear verses 10 to 11 and still think that nothing is required of us other than maybe feeling bad. So verse 12 says this, if you say, behold, we did not know this, this referring back to what we just read about people being taken away to death. If you say, look, we didn't know this. Well, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not the one who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? So this is speaking directly to us as the readers. If you say, it's talking to us. So this wise man knows how people will respond to this call. And he anticipates an excuse. He knows we may say, look, I didn't know what was going on. And actually notice it's plural. Notice, look, we didn't know what was going on. So he's anticipating communities making the excuse together of not knowing what's going on. So the wise man asks another question. Does not God know it? Think, does not God know your heart? He doesn't say, I know you know. He says, God knows what's really going on here. He knows what's going on in your heart. So today there are many cases of injustice, and we may suspect there are problems. So I want to help us clearly know so that we don't rely on an excuse in our hearts of not knowing what's going on. So just very briefly, a few data points. So here's the current situation. And this isn't data gathered by um, some biased source. This is from the Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood. So globally, there are 40 million abortions each year. So global day of adversity. In America, there are about, it varies year to year, there are about one million abortions each year. So to gain some perspective, Indianapolis has a population of about 850,000 or so. In 2014, uh, which is somewhat of a typical year, um, 19% of all pregnancies except miscarriages ended in abortion. So that's the data. So there are a number these are the number of, of reported human lives taken away to death if we interpret this in light of Proverbs. So in light of this, what does verse 12 mean when it says, behold, we didn't know. We didn't, we didn't know about this. It means that we can't say that. We do know. And this verse calls us to take responsibility. So this theme of taking responsibility for the needy is pervasive throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9 says this, open your mouth for the mute. So those who can't speak, you speak for them. What would they say? What would they want you to say? Open your mouth for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The final line of our text in verse 12 says that God will repay a man according to his work. I don't think that's referring in this context to those who are actually carrying the people away in death, though that's true. In context, this is a warning to those who are passive and make excuses for doing nothing when it's happening. So to those who make excuses saying, look, we didn't know, verse 12 says, God knows your heart and he will judge you according to what you do. So here's some perspective. What will future generations think about our generation when they look back? Nations have been through seasons of this kind of thing before. 
Germany with the Holocaust, England and American with slavery, horrific evils and injustices, treating some human beings as less than human, and whole populations standing by passively when it's happening. So what do we think about them now? Us looking back with our perspective. And what would they think looking back on themselves? I think that shows us we know deep in our gut that there is a responsibility that everyone in a society has for what's going on when there's injustice. So R.C. Sproul made this comment in an interview conversation. He said that he thinks our current situation of abortion is worse than the Holocaust. He said, the intentions are not as evil because people have been brainwashed. But even within the church, people are allowing the government to determine what's right and wrong. So he said this, but if indeed we are determinately killing and destroying living human persons, that means we have the most volatile ethic, ethical, social, moral issue in the history of the United States of America. And it's not just here. It's in the whole world, at least the whole Western world. And this is seen as the lowest point of corruption and of cultural disintegration that I can imagine. And what are my great-grandchildren going to say about my generation that let this happen? So let's move to the final thing we need, motivation. So this text calls us to fortitude, courage, action, to take responsibility. So this is weighty. And if, if you and I are tracking with the logic of Proverbs applied to our human rights issue today, then this is meant to change our lives, every single one of us. This is meant to stir every single person to some kind of sustained engagement in expressing love to those who are carried away to death and to those who are in these situations, mothers, fathers, and children, our unborn neighbors. So this text confronts me. It's confronted me this week. It's, it's offended me. It calls me out. Uh, it's meant to be offensive and confrontational in that sense because it confronts our apathy. It confronts Christians who live nice, good lives but who don't do anything to, about the injustice issue of our time. It confronts those of us who are sporadic in our prayers and efforts for the unborn. And it calls us to change the course of our lives, to make the issue of abortion one of the moral issues of our lives. But here's the problem. Many of us know this truth already, and we remain inactive. Our actions are sporadic. Why? There's a number of reasons. But one of the main one, ones is because we're lacking one or both of the two primary motivations that we need. The Bible doesn't just tell us what to do. It doesn't just command us to ask, act. It motivates us. It gives us certain kinds of motivations that are to work in our soul to propel us to actually act. And that motivation is a revolution in the mind and the heart. 
So there's two primary motivations we need in order for this to become a turning point in our life, if that's needed for you, or for all of us to at least take one step forward and sustain that work of engagement. There's two motivations we need. The first motivation is one I've already spent time on earlier. It's the motivation that comes from simply knowing that the preborn are made in God's image. They each have dignity. God himself made them. In his image, each has a right to life, the same one that a toddler or adult has. And this reality moves us, stirs us to care for our fellow humans, fellow image bearers, and protect them. The second motivation, though, is this. God's grace in rescuing us, rescuing you and me. Through the Bible, the primary motivation for caring for the needy is God's grace in caring for our need. So the original Hebrew readers of this text would probably have heard an echo of God's grace in this text. They would have heard it in the word rescue. We're called to rescue those who are being oppressed and carried away to death. That word rescue was the primary word used in the book of Exodus to refer to Israel's great deliverance and rescue that God performed on their behalf rescuing from their oppression and slavery, rescuing them from death, rescuing them from the judgment that they deserved when he was judging that nation. And so God rescued them and he delivered them. And then as God brought them out of that uh, oppressive environment and brought them to himself, he gave them his expectations. He instructed them on how to live with his law. And he told them to use that rescue as the motivation for them to rescue the needy in their own midst. Listen to Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 and 18. God says this, You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. So those are three of the most commonly oppressed, vulnerable people in that time, in that culture. But you shall remember So don't oppress them. Don't pervert justice for them. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see the logic there? Care for the sojourner, the weak, the needy, the poor. Don't oppress them. Don't pervert justice. Why? Here's why I'm commanding you to do this. Because I rescued you. You were oppressed. You were needy. And I brought you out. So care for others just like you've been cared for. So they were commanded to care for the poor and needy because God cared for them in their impoverishment and need. They're to protect men and women and children from injustice and oppression because they were oppressed and God rescued them. And this foundational motivation is threaded through the Bible, including the New Testament. In fact, ratcheted up in the New Testament. The New Testament makes no, um, does not avoid dealing with the reality that we have actually failed in what we've needed to do, that we've failed to walk in, in, in justice. We've failed in our responsibility to others. But the New Testament says that Jesus came to bring about a greater rescue than the Exodus. He came to rescue us from sin, from our apathy, from the judgment of death and hell. He came to rescue us from our great day of distress that's on the horizon, the judgment to come. And he did it by enduring his own day of distress on the cross. Jesus was carried away to death in the the world's greatest act of injustice, taking the innocent son of God and slaughtering him in an execution on a tree. 
No one held him back. No one rescued him. He stumbled to the slaughter. Why? Because in doing that, he was rescuing us. Because he saw us stumbling to a just punishment for our sins. But he had mercy on us. He came to bring grace to everyone who will trust him. Every woman who has had an abortion, every man who has pressured his wife or girlfriend to have it, every parent or grandparent who proposed this as the best option for their children or grandchildren, every one of us who has done nothing to stop the injustice of our day, this is Jesus' grace. Washing us in gracious forgiveness and then empowering us as we rest in that grace to be motivated to help others in their need. This is what changed those Christians in that first century who came out of that Greco-Roman culture that was totally fine with all of this stuff. And then they had, there was a revolution that happened in their mind and heart, and it's because of Jesus, because they knew that he adopted them. He rescued them. And so they received that rescue, that smile from Christ, and then they extended that to the needy and vulnerable around them. Many of those first Christians probably had their own stories of killing their children. It was commonplace in their culture. And then they met Jesus, and the guilt was washed away. And they had freedom and joy and life. And they took that freedom and joy and life and started to help others in their needs. So they had a new motivation. And that motivation can change our generation, can change every single one of us. If we grasp the meaning of our own rescue, we will be motivated to rescue others. So those are the two motivations. And those two motivations, seeing dignity in every human being and knowing that we have received grace, that has the power to change every one of us to gladly sacrifice our own interests and our own lives for the others that need our help. So if these motivations grip our hearts, we'll gladly sacrifice our time, our comforts, our resources. So here's a few things we might do in closing. I'll just list them. And I encourage you to talk about these at lunch, talk about these in your small group, uh, talk about these with friends, talk about these as family. And maybe the first thing is to be quiet before the Lord and repent to Him about passivity, um, and receive his mercy. Here's a number of things we can do from there. If we have these motivations working in our hearts, we will pray. We'll pray for the preborn uh, regularly in our small groups with our families before the Lord. We will vote. We'll think about how our vote matters for this issue. We will give. We'll find out what pregnancy help centers need funding and how we can come alongside and help contribute to them. We'll volunteer. We can see how we can help serve, lead studies, counsel, uh, and serve at a pregnancy help center. We'll write songs and books and articles and blog posts to communicate winsomely the value of human life and the grace of Jesus. We'll talk with our friends. We will kindly and calmly ask them the central question, are the preborn human beings? We won't do this with a gleam in our eye. We won't have a chip on our shoulder. We won't do it gritting our teeth. We won't argue. We will kindly, as people who have received the gentle grace of Jesus, we will gently and kindly and lovingly engage in this conversation, treating the person we are talking to 
as also made in God's image, just like we want to protect those who are little made in God's image. So our tone will be kind, and we'll ask this important question, are the preborn human beings, and if so, and we care about human rights, what does it look like to apply that to them? As men, we will pursue sexual integrity before marriage and faithfulness in marriage so we would never put a woman in a situation where she's even tempted to have an abortion. We will adopt children and help mothers and fathers raise their children. We will be pro-life for all of life. We will read and learn about the topic. There's a number of books. I'd be happy to recommend some to you. There's a few copies of The Case for Life at the Resource Center. We'll engage in the government and legislation, making the laws of our country more just and humane. And in doing these things, we're going to join this long legacy of heroic believers who sacrificed their own desires in order to help those who needed it. They loved their unborn neighbor. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word and We now want to take a moment to be silent before you and reflect on this and repent if needed. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all grace who comes to us to comfort us in all our affliction, even when we are the reason why we feel afflicted. You heal us and you befriend us and you stir us to love others as you loved us. And so we pray that you would do that. And we pray for all of those here who need a deep comfort that they've never had and that only you can give, that you would give that. And that you would stir us to action and that this generation would rescue the needy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and receive benediction from God's word. May the deep love of God our Father and the rescuing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the comforting fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this week. Let's go in peace to love and serve all our neighbors.